This is Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow. This is the second of three parts of chapter three, entitled The Color of Justice. Cracked Up, Discriminatory Sentencing in the War on Drugs. Anyone who doubts the devastating impact of McCleskey versus Kemp on African-American defendants throughout the criminal justice system, including those ensnared by the war on drugs, need only ask Edward Clary. Two months after his 18th birthday, Clary was stopped and searched in the St. Louis airport because he looked like a drug courier. At the time, he was returning home from visiting some friends in California. One of them persuaded him to take some drugs back home to St. Louis. Clary had never attempted to deal drugs before, and he had no criminal record. During the search, the police found crack cocaine and promptly arrested him. He was convicted in federal court and sentenced under federal laws that punish crack offenses 100 times more severely than offenses involving powder cocaine. A conviction for the sale of 500 grams of powder cocaine triggers a five-year mandatory sentence, while only five grams of crack triggers the same sentence. Because Cleary had been caught with more than 50 grams of crack, less than two ounces, the sentencing judge believed he had no choice but to sentence him, an 18-year-old first-time offender, to a minimum of 10 years in federal prison. Clary, like the defendants in other crack cases, challenged the constitutionality of the 100-to-1 ratio. His lawyers argued that the law is arbitrary and irrational because it imposes such vastly different penalties on two forms of the same substance. They also argued that the law discriminates against African Americans because the majority of those charged with crimes involving crack at the time were black. Approximately 93% of convicted crack offenders were black, 5% were white, whereas powder cocaine offenders were predominantly white. Every federal appellate court to have considered these claims had rejected them on the ground that Congress, rightly or wrongly, believed that crack was more dangerous to society, a view supported by the testimony of some drug abuse experts and police officers. The fact that most of the evidence in support of any disparity had since been discredited was deemed irrelevant. What mattered was whether the law had seemed rational at the time it was adopted. Congress, the courts concluded, is free to amend the law if circumstances have changed. Courts also rejected the claims that crack sentencing laws were racially discriminatory, largely on the ground that the Supreme Court's decision in McCleskey v. Kemp precluded such a result. In the years following McCleskey, lower courts consistently rejected claims of race discrimination in the criminal justice system, finding that gross racial disparities do not merit strict scrutiny in the absence of evidence of explicit race discrimination, the very evidence unavailable in the era of colorblindness. Judge Clyde Cahill of the Federal District of Missouri, an African-American judge assigned Clary's case, boldly challenged the prevailing view that courts are powerless to address forms of race discrimination that are not overtly hostile. Cahill declared the 100 to 1 ratio racially discriminatory in violation of the 14th Amendment, notwithstanding McCleskey. Although no admissions of racial bias or racist intent could be found in the record, Judge Cahill believed race was undeniably a factor in the crack sentencing laws and policies. He traced the history of the Get Tough movement and concluded that fear coupled with unconscious racism had led to a lynch mob mentality and a desire to control crime, and those deemed responsible for it, at any cost. Cahill acknowledged that many people may not believe they are motivated by discriminatory attitudes, but argued that we all have internalized fear of young black men, a fear reinforced by media imagery that has helped to create a national image of the young black male as a criminal. 
The presumption of innocence is now a legal myth, he declared. The 100 to 1 ratio, coupled with mandatory minimum sentencing provided by federal statute, has created a situation that reeks with inhumanity and injustice. If young white males were being incarcerated at the same rate as young black males, the statute would have been amended long ago. Judge Cahill sentenced Clary as if the drug he had carried home had been powder cocaine. The sentence imposed was four years in prison. Clary served his term and was released. The prosecution appealed Clary's case to the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals, which reversed Judge Cahill in a unanimous opinion, finding that the case was not even close. In the court's view, there was no credible evidence that the crack penalties were motivated by any conscious racial bigotry, as required by McCleskey v. Kemp. The court remanded the case back to the district court for resentencing. Clary, now married and a father, was ordered back to prison to complete his 10-year term. Few challenges to sentencing schemes, patterns, or results have been brought since McCleskey for the exercise is plainly futile. Plainly futile. Yet in 1995, a few brave souls challenged the implementation of Georgia's two strikes and you're out sentencing scheme, which imposes life imprisonment for a second drug offense. Georgia's district attorneys, who have unbridled discretion to decide whether to seek this harsh penalty, had invoked it against only 1% of white defendants facing a second drug conviction, but against 16% of black defendants. The result was that 19 or 98.4% of those serving life sentences under the provision were black. The Georgia Supreme Court ruled by a 4-3 vote that the stark racial disparity presented a threshold case of discrimination and required the prosecutors to offer a race-neutral explanation for the results. Rather than offer a justification, however, the Georgia Attorney General filed a petition for rehearing signed by every one of the state's 46 district attorneys, all of whom were white. The petition argued that the court's decision was a dire mistake. If the decision were allowed to stand and prosecutors were compelled to explain gross racial disparities such as the ones at issue, it would be a substantial step toward invalidating the death penalty and would paralyze the criminal justice system, apparently because severe and inexplicable racial disparities pervaded the system as a whole. Thirteen days later, the Georgia Supreme Court reversed itself, holding that the fact that 98.4% of the defendants selected to receive life sentences for repeat drug offenses were black required no justification. The court's new decision relied almost exclusively on McCleskey v. Kemp. To date, not a single successful challenge has ever been made to racial bias in sentencing under McCleskey v. Kemp anywhere in the United States. Charging ahead, Armstrong v. United States. If sentencing were the only stage of the criminal justice process in which racial biases were allowed to flourish, it would be a tragedy of gargantuan proportions. Thousands of people have had years of their lives wasted in prison, years they would have been free if they had been white. Some, like McCleskey, have been killed because of the influence of race in the death penalty. Sentencing, however, is not the end, but just the beginning. As we shall see, the legal rules governing prosecutions, like those that govern sentencing decisions, maximize rather than minimize racial bias in the drug war. The Supreme Court has gone to great lengths to ensure that prosecutors are free to exercise their discretion in any manner they choose, and it has closed the courthouse doors to claims of racial bias. As discussed in Chapter 2, no one has more power in the criminal justice system than prosecutors. Few rules constrain the exercise of prosecutorial discretion. 
The prosecutor is free to dismiss a case for any reason or no reason at all, regardless of the strength of the evidence. The prosecutor is also free to file more charges against a defendant than can realistically be proven in court, so long as probable cause arguably exists. Whether a good plea deal is offered to a defendant is entirely up to the prosecutor. And if the mood strikes, the prosecutor can transfer drug defendants to the federal system, where the penalties are far more severe. Juveniles, for their part, can be transferred to adult court, where they can be sent to adult prison. Angela J. Davis, in her authoritative study, Arbitrary Justice, the Power of the American Prosecutor, observes that the most remarkable feature of these important, sometimes life-and-death decisions is that they are totally discretionary and virtually unreviewable. Most prosecutors' offices lack any manual or guidebook advising prosecutors how to make discretionary decisions. Even the American Bar Association's standards of practice for prosecutors are purely aspirational. No prosecutor is required to follow the standards or even consider them. Christopher Lee Armstrong learned the hard way that the Supreme Court has little interest in ensuring that prosecutors exercise their extraordinary discretion in a manner that is fair and non-discriminatory. He, along with four of his companions, was staying at a Los Angeles motel in April 1992 when federal and state agents on a joint drug crime task force raided their room and arrested them on federal drug charges, conspiracy to distribute more than 50 grams of crack cocaine. The federal public defenders assigned to Armstrong's case were disturbed by the fact that Armstrong and his friends had something in common with every other crack defendant their office had represented during the past year they were all black. In fact, of the 53 crack cases their office had handled over the prior three years, 48 defendants were black, five were Hispanic, and not a single one was white. Armstrong's lawyers found it puzzling that no white crack offenders had been charged, given that most crack offenders are white. They suspected that whites were being diverted by federal prosecutors to the state system, where the penalties for crack offenses were far less severe. The only way to prove this, though, would be to gain access to the prosecutor's records and find out just how many white defendants were transferred to the state system and why. Armstrong's lawyers thus filed a motion asking the district court for discovery of the prosecutor's files to support their claim of selective prosecution under the 14th Amendment. Nearly 100 years earlier, in a case called Yick Wo v. Hopkins, the Supreme Court had recognized that racially selective enforcement violates most equal violates equal protection laws. Equal protection of the laws. In that case, decided in 1886, the court unanimously overturned convictions of two Chinese men who were operating laundries without a license. San Francisco had denied licenses to all Chinese applicants, but granted licenses to all but one of the non-Chinese laundry operators who applied. Law enforcement arrested more than a hundred people for operating laundries without licenses, and every one of the arrestees was Chinese. Overturning Yik Wo's conviction, the Supreme Court declared in a widely quoted passage, Though the law itself be fair on its face and impartial in appearance, yet if it is applied and administered by public authority with an evil eye and an unequal hand, so as practically to make unjust and illegal discriminations between persons in similar circumstances, the denial of equal justice is still within the prohibition of the Constitution. Armstrong's lawyers sought to prove that, like the law at issue in Yik Wo, Federal crack laws were fair on their face and impartial in their appearance, but were selectively enforced in a racially discriminatory manner. In support of their claim that Armstrong should, at the very least, be entitled to discovery, Armstrong's lawyers offered two sworn affidavits. 
One was from a halfway house intake coordinator who testified that, in his experience treating crack addicts, whites and blacks dealt and used the drugs in similar proportions. The other affidavit was from a defense attorney who had extensive experience in state prosecutions. He testified that non-black defendants were routinely prosecuted in state rather than federal court. Arguably, the best evidence in support of Armstrong's claims came from the government, which submitted a list of more than 2,000 people charged with federal crack cocaine violations over a three-year period, all but 11 of whom were black. None were white. The district court ruled that the evidence presented was sufficient to justify discovery for the purposes of determining whether the allegations of selective enforcement were valid. The prosecutors, however, refused to release any records and appealed the issue all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. In May 1996, the Supreme Court reversed. As in McCleskey, the court did not question the accuracy of the evidence submitted, but ruled that because Armstrong failed to identify any similarly situated white defendants, who should have been charged in federal court but were not, he was not entitled even to discovery on his selective prosecution claim. With no trace of irony, the court demanded that Armstrong produce in advance the very thing he sought in discovery, information regarding white defendants who should have been charged in federal court. That information, of course, was in the prosecution's possession and control, which is why Armstrong filed a discovery motion in the first place. As a result of the Armstrong decision, defendants who suspect racial bias on the part of prosecutors are trapped in a classic catch-22. In order to state a claim of selective prosecution, they are required to offer, in advance, the very evidence that generally can be obtained only through the discovery of the prosecutor's files. The court justified this insurmountable hurdle on the grounds that considerable deference is owed the exercise of prosecutorial discretion. Unless the evidence of conscious, intentional bias on the part of the prosecutor exists, or could be produced, the court would not allow any inquiry into the reasons for or causes of apparent racial disparities in prosecutorial decision-making. Again, the courthouse doors were closed for all practical purposes to claims of racial bias in the administration of the criminal justice system. Immunizing prosecutors from claims of racial bias and failing to impose any meaningful check on the exercise of their discretion in charging, plea bargaining, transferring cases, and sentencing has created an environment in which conscious and unconscious biases are allowed to flourish. Numerous studies have shown that prosecutors interpret and respond to identical criminal activity differently based on the race of the offender. One widely cited study was conducted in San Jose Mercury News. One study reviewed 700,000 criminal cases that were matched by crime and criminal history of the defendant. The analysis revealed that similarly situated whites were far more successful than African Americans and Latinos in the plea bargaining process. In fact, at virtually every stage of the pre-trial negotiation, whites are more successful than non-whites. The most comprehensive studies of racial bias in the exercise of prosecutorial and judicial discretion involve the treatment of juveniles. These studies have shown that youth of color are more likely to be arrested, detained, formally charged, transferred to adult court, and confined to secure residential facilities than their white counterparts. A report in 2000 observed that among youth who have never been sent to a juvenile prison before, African Americans were more than six times as likely as whites to be sentenced to prison for identical crimes. A study sponsored by the U.S. Justice Department 
and several of the nation's leading foundations published in 2007 found that the impact of the bias treatment is magnified with each additional step into the criminal justice system. African-American youth account for 16% of all youth, 28% of all juvenile arrests, and 35% of the youth waived to adult criminal court, and 58% of youth admitted to state adult prison. A major reason for these disparities is unconscious and conscious racial biases infecting decision-making. In the state of Washington, for example, a review of juvenile sentencing reports found that prosecutors routinely described black and white offenders differently. Blacks committed crimes because of intentional personality flaws, such as disrespect. Whites did so because of external conditions, such as family conflict. The risk that prosecutorial discretion will be racially biased is especially acute in the drug enforcement context, where virtually identical behavior is susceptible to a wide variety of interpretations and responses, and the media imagery and political discourse has been so thoroughly racialized. Whether a kid is perceived as a dangerous, drug-dealing thug, or instead is viewed as a good kid who is merely experimenting with drugs and selling to a few of his friends, has to do with the ways in which information about illegal drug activity is processed and interpreted, in a social climate in which drug dealing is racially defined. As a former U.S. attorney explained, I had an assistant U.S. attorney who wanted to drop the gun charge against the defendant in a case which there was no extenuating circumstances. I asked, why do you want to drop the gun offense? And he said, well, he's a rural guy and grew up on the farm. The gun he had with him was a rifle. He's a good old boy, and all good old boys have rifles. And it's not like he was a gun-toting drug dealer. But he was a gun-toting drug dealer, exactly. The decision in Armstrong effectively shields this type of bias decision-making from judicial scrutiny for racial bias. Prosecutors are well aware that the exercise of their discretion is unchecked, provided no explicitly racist remarks are made and it is next to impossible for the defendants to prove racial bias. It's difficult to imagine a system better designed to ensure that racial biases and stereotypes are given free reign, while at the same time appearing on the surface to be colorblind, than one devised by the U.S. Supreme Court. In defense of the all-white jury, Perkett v. Elm, the rules governing jury selection provide yet another illustration of the court's complete abdication of its responsibility to guarantee racial minorities equal treatment under the law. In 1985, in Baston v. Kentucky, the court held that the 14th Amendment prohibits prosecutors from discriminating on the basis of race when selecting juries, a ruling hailed as an important safeguard against all-white juries locking up African Americans based on racial biases and stereotypes. Prior to Baston, prosecutors had been allowed to strike blacks from juries, provided they did not always strike black jurors. The Supreme Court had ruled in 1965, in Swain v. Alabama, that an equal protection claim would arise only if a defendant could prove that a prosecutor struck African-American jurors in every case, regardless of the crime involved, or regardless of the races of the defendant or the victim. Two decades later, in Baston, the Supreme Court reversed course, a nod to the newly minted public consensus that explicit race discrimination is an affront to American values. Almost immediately after Baston was decided, however, it became readily apparent that prosecutors had no difficulty circumventing the formal requirement of colorblindness in jury selection by means of a form of subterfuge the court could come to accept, if not endorse. 
it would come to accept. The history of race discrimination and jury selection dates back to slavery. Until 1860, no black person had ever sat on a jury in the United States. During the Reconstruction Era, African Americans began to serve on juries in the South for the first time. The all-white jury promptly returned, however, when Democratic conservatives sought to redeem the South by stripping blacks of their right to vote and their right to serve on juries. In 1880, the Supreme Court intervened, striking down a West Virginia statute that expressly reserved jury service to white men. Citing the recently enacted 14th Amendment, the court declared that the exclusion of blacks from jury service was practically a brand upon them, affixed by law, an assertion of their inferiority, and a stimulant to that race prejudice which is an impediment to equal justice. The court asked, How can it be maintained that compelling a colored man to submit to a trial for his life by a jury drawn from a panel from which the state has expressly excluded every man of his race because of his color alone, however well qualified in other respects, is not a denial to him of equal protection. For all its bluster, the court offered no meaningful protection against jury discrimination in the years that followed. As legal scholar Benno Schmidt has observed, from the end of Reconstruction through the New Deal, the systematic exclusion of black men from southern juries was about as plain as any legal discrimination could be, short of proclamation in state statutes or confession by state officials. The Supreme Court repeatedly upheld convictions of black defendants by all-white juries in situations where exclusion of black jurors was obvious. The only case in which the court overturned a conviction on the grounds of discrimination in jury selection was Neal v. Delaware, a case decided in 1935. State law in Delaware once had explicitly restricted jury service to white men, and no colored citizen had ever been summoned as a juror. The Delaware Supreme Court had rejected Neal's equal protection claim on the ground that the great body of black men residing in this state are utterly unqualified for jury service by want of intelligence, experience, or moral integrity. The Supreme Court reversed. Clearly, what offended the U.S. Supreme Court was not the exclusion of blacks from jury service per se, but rather doing so openly and explicitly. That orientation continues to hold today. Notwithstanding Baston's formal prohibition on race discrimination in jury selection, the Supreme Court and lower federal courts have tolerated all but the most egregious examples of racial bias in jury selection. Miller L. v. Cockrell was such a case. That case involved a jury selection manual that sanctioned race-based selection. The court noted that it was unclear whether the official policy of race-based exclusion was still in effect, but the prosecution did in fact exclude 10 of 11 black jurors, in part by employing an unusual practice of jury shuffling that reduced the number of black jurors. The prosecution also engaged in disparate questioning of jurors based on race, practices that seemed linked to the jury selection manual. This was a highly unusual case. In typical cases, there are no official policies authorizing race discrimination in jury selection still lurking around, arguably in effect. Normally, the discrimination is obvious yet unstated, and the systematic exclusion of black jurors continues largely unabated through use of the peremptory strike. Peremptory strikes have long been controversial. Both prosecutors and defense attorneys are permitted to strike peremptorily jurors they don't like, that is, people they believe will not respond favorably to the evidence or witnesses they intend to present at trial. 
In theory, peremptory strikes may increase the fairness of the proceeding by eliminating jurors who may be biased but whose biases cannot be demonstrated convincingly to a judge. In practice, however, peremptory challenges are notoriously discriminatory. Lawyers typically have little information about potential jurors, so their decision to strike individual jurors tends to be based on nothing more than stereotypes, prejudices, and hunches. Achieving an all-white jury, or nearly all-white jury, is easy in most jurisdictions because relatively few racial minorities are included in the jury pool. Potential jurors are typically called for service based on a list of registered voters or Department of Motor Vehicle lists, sources that contain disproportionately fewer people of color because people of color are significantly less likely to own cars or register to vote. Making matters worse, 31 states and the federal government subscribe to the practice of lifetime felon exclusion from juries. As a result, about 30% of black men are automatically banned from jury service for life. Accordingly, no more than a handful of strikes are necessary in many cases to eliminate all or nearly all black jurors. The practice of systematically excluding black jurors has not been halted by Bastin. The only thing that has changed is that prosecutors must come up with a race-neutral excuse for the strikes, an exceedingly easy task. In fact, one comprehensive study reviewed all published decisions involving Bastin challenges from 1986 to 1992 and concluded that prosecutors almost never fail to successfully craft acceptable race-neutral explanations to justify striking black jurors. Courts accept explanations that jurors are too young, too old, too conservative, too liberal, too comfortable, or too uncomfortable. Clothing is also a favorite reason. Jurors have been stricken for wearing hats or sunglasses, even explanations that might correlate with race, such as lack of education, unemployment, poverty, being single, living in the same neighborhood as the defendant, or prior involvement with the criminal justice system have been accepted as perfectly good, non-pretextual excuses for striking African Americans from juries. As Professor Sherry Lynn Johnson once remarked, if prosecutors exist who cannot create a racially neutral reason for discriminating on the basis of race, bar exams are too easy. Given how flagrantly po prosecutors were violating Bastin's ban on race discrimination in jury selection, it was reasonable to hope that, if presented with a particularly republic repugnant case, the Supreme Court might be willing to draw the line at practices that make a mockery of the anti-discrimination principle. Granted, the court had been unwilling to accept statistical proof of race discrimination in sentencing in McCleskey, and it had brushed off concerns of racial bias in discretionary police stops in Wren, and it had granted virtual immunity to prosecutors in their charging decisions in Armstrong, but would it go so far as to allow prosecutors to offer blatantly absurd, downright laughable excuses for striking blacks from juries? It turns out the answer was yes. In Perkett v. Elm in 1995, the Supreme Court ruled that any race-neutral reason, no matter how silly, ridiculous, or superstitious, is enough to satisfy the prosecutor's burden of showing that a pattern of striking a particular racial group is not, in fact, based on race. In that case, the prosecutor offered the following explanation to justify his strikes of black jurors. I struck juror number 22 because of his long hair. He had long, curly hair. He had the longest hair of anybody on the panel by far. He appeared not to be a good juror for that fact. Also, he had a mustache and a goatee-type beard. And juror number 24 also had a mustache and goatee-type beard. And I don't like the way they looked, with the way their hair is cut, both of them. And the mustaches and the beards look suspicious to me. 
The Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit ruled that the foregoing explanation for the prosecutor's strikes of black jurors was insufficient and should have been rejected by the trial court because long hair and facial hair are not plausibly related to a person's ability to perform as a juror. The appellate court explained, Where the prosecution strikes a prospective juror who is a member of the defendant's racial group solely on the basis of factors which are facially irrelevant to the question of whether that person is qualified to serve as a juror in that particular case, the prosecution must at least articulate some plausible race-neutral reason for believing that those factors will somehow affect the person's ability to perform his or her duties as a juror. The U.S. Supreme Court reversed, holding that when a pattern of race-based strikes has been identified by the defense, the prosecutor need not provide an explanation that is persuasive or even plausible. Once the reason is offered, a trial judge may choose to believe or disbelieve any silly or superstitious reason offered by prosecutors to explain a pattern of strikes that appear to be based on race. The court sent a clear message that appellate courts are largely free to accept the reasons offered by a prosecutor for excluding prospective black jurors, no matter how irrational or absurd the reasons may seem.